Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy is a 10-episode fictional coming-of-age audio drama. Start with episode one and listen in sequence. If you love it, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or join our email list for exclusive content, free tracks, and episode announcements. Happy listening! Sick Picnic Media presents Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy, a novella in sound and color. Written and narrated by Matt Geiler. Episode 8 A Talent for Being Late. I had just reached the top of the stairs to the third floor and rounded the corner to head to the library for English when I ran into Jill who was hurrying down the hallway in the opposite direction straight at me. Unusually, she wasn't surrounded by the other girls. I stopped and was going to ask her if I could sit by her at lunch, but she rocketed by in a spearmint-flavored hurricane. Come on, she laughed, locking her eyes with mine and motioning back toward the stairs I had just ascended with her head. I could feel myself smiling, but I wasn't moving. Come on! The second time she said this was more command than suggestion, issued in a husky whisper that made me feel like I would miss out on something amazing if I didn't follow her that instant. I turned and ran after her. She was already speeding away from the bottom of the stairs by the time I was halfway down, and I had no idea where she was going. Actually, I had no idea what I was doing. I had never not been where I was supposed to be before. In my experience, you didn't just decide you weren't going to English today. If my mom were watching this, her chin would have tightened, her left eyebrow would have arched, and she would have said something like, Frederick Albert Julius, why don't you come back over here and explain to me just what it is you think you're doing? Fortunately, she was at the absolute other end of the building dealing with high school kids. I glimpsed Jill going into the auditorium right as I arrived back down on the second floor. She just opened the enormous twin oak doors and went right in. I did too, thinking as I swung them apart that it was a pretty brazen thing for her to do. The main office and the guidance counselor were both right across the hall from there. Principal Peters, the two secretaries, or any number of kids being detained for minor offenses could have seen Jill enter but nobody even looked up. As the auditorium doors gently shut behind me, I heard mystic pipes and reeds blossom in a rush of damp Celtic wind like the whole school might fall away in the wake of a sensational adventure about to begin. The hairs on my arms were beginning to rise, and I thought this must have been what Edmund felt like when he went through the wardrobe into Narnia. Maybe this was the moment I discovered that Jill had arranged for the two of us to embark for the Mediterranean by steamer. Maybe her gigantic leather trunks were already being loaded into a car out the back of the stage door by men she had hired. Maybe those men were wearing thick porter coats and worked as a team to handle all of her international escapades. 
If we were going to travel to far-off places, it was actually a good idea for her to tell me in the silent seclusion of the auditorium so that everybody else in English didn't get upset or want to go along. She was sitting on the lip of the stage with her legs crossed. Come on, she urged, pulling me down the center aisle with a slowly drawn finger. My feet were fuzzy and buoyant as I obeyed. The only light in the auditorium came from the long, narrow windows down either side, but it was only enough to varnish the old seats and rickety floor in a melancholy accent while the rest of it remained dark. Being in there was like stepping from 1987 into 1911, which was actually when the junior high building had been built. It was originally the town high school, and although every other part of it had been updated to at least what was acceptable for the 1960s, the auditorium had somehow survived untouched by modernity. It felt like we had a vaudeville hall in the middle of our school. Even though nothing much ever happened in there, I often imagined as I passed between classes that while we were toiling away in algebra, the Pantages Theater Group was on stage rehearsing for an evening show while Fatty Arbuckle chain-smoked and went over the beats and punches of his comedic routines. Jill was at precisely eye level with me when I got to the end of the aisle. She uncrossed her legs and opened her arms in one uninterrupted motion, lofting her left arm over my shoulder and around my neck and drawing my left arm around her waist with her right, fastening us together with zero space. Do you want to see something really cool? She asked, her forehead touching mine. Sure, I murmured, mirroring her position. Okay, come on. She was a wind again, taking my hand as she whirled up from the stage, forcing me to jump up after her. She smiled back over her shoulder as she led me into the complete darkness at the back of the stage. You're going to like this, Jill assured me. This is like the absolute coolest. Barely visible in the black behind the second set of curtains was a flimsy flight of stairs that wound upwards into even more darkness. It looked like the slapdash architecture from a Dr. Seuss book, whimsical and cartoonish and teetering precariously and definitely not structurally sound. Jill started to climb and I went up after her. We were almost at the top when I paused to look down. Through the solid silhouettes of curtains and hanging lights and the old iron bars and gridwork that held them all up, the edge of the stage was a gauzy gradient of black to pale gray where the light from the windows hit. But that was all I could see. It gave me the curious feeling of crawling upward into a deep hole. Jill somehow found the pull chain to an overhead light and tugged it, revealing where we had ended up. Like the theater itself, the bulb looked like it hadn't been changed since Edison invented them, summoning everything it had left of its antique filament just to burp out a dim amber on its surroundings. You're right, I grinned, looking around. I do like it. We were standing on a platform in the uppermost corner of the auditorium, the ancient ceiling not six feet above our heads. Two aged brick walls covered in pitch-black stucco met to form the back and one side of a narrow almost room. 
The other sides were merely an outline sketched by a thin metal pipe rail that disappeared where the steps hit. It had been so dark climbing up that I couldn't see what supported it. It felt like we were floating in space. There was a small wardrobe rack with an odd assortment of very old-looking costumes and clothes hanging on it. An old-time marching band uniform in scarlet and gold, some dresses with faded floral prints from the Great Depression, and a couple of double-breasted suits, one striped and the other checkered. On top of and surrounding the clothing were hat boxes, an acoustic guitar, an accordion, and a wagon wheel. A giant barrel filled with wooden swords, spears, and colorful tattered flags on poles sat next to a giant open gray storage trunk filled with theatrically useful miscellany, a gaudy picture frame with an autumn landscape, a desk lamp, cigar boxes, and a gauzy pile of pastel scarves wrapping around a faceless fabric head holding a flowing brunette wig. But most of the platform was taken up by an antique chaise lounge. The wood trim was a burnt chocolate with traces of red educed by the minimal light. Its upholstery was fern green with elaborate embroidery that reminded me of a smoking jacket, but one you might wear if you lived in a rainforest. We both sat down on it almost reverently. Isn't this amazing? Jill asked me. How did you know this was up here? I've been exploring the building, she said, to find cool spots. I came in here after school yesterday and started looking around, and when I found the stairs, I had to climb them to see where they went, right? This is definitely a cool spot. I thought you'd like it. It's awesome. It feels like a hidden treehouse in the middle of the school. She turned into me and somehow crawled me back onto the upcurve of the chaise. Her body pressing down against mine felt comfortable and easy, and thick like a heavy wool mint-scented coat. She flipped her hair to the side and lowered her face to mine so that our noses were touching and our eyes were fixed. How did you know I'd like it? You're fun and you're funny, Jill answered. You always make our English class laugh when you read your stories. Everybody loves the voices. I don't know. It just seems like your kind of place with your imagination and everything. I didn't know if another person could feel your body tingling through your sweatshirt, but it was likely Jill could given our proximity. My whole form was saturated in the lightest feedback and distortion from a little combo amp with sleigh bells weaving in and out of the analog purr. That's why I like you, she followed up. I wanted to say something reciprocal, but we were kissing before I could get anything out. As unfamiliar with Frenching as I had been at the football game, it seemed to come back pretty quickly. Maybe it was one of those things where once you knew the rhythm of it, you could just plug back in any time and play. When Jill pulled back a little, I gently tilted her head with my left hand and improvised a kiss on the curve of her tan neck. I felt her shoulder shake a little. We both stopped. What was that? Her eyes were glinting. I don't know, I blushed. I just thought I would kiss you there. She nodded slowly and an excited smile emerged. The bell erupted, ending third period and beginning lunch. That gave me shivers. That was really good. 
Good, I blurted. I mean, I'm glad it wasn't terrible. I'm still learning. It was fine, she laughed. Although we were miles above the life of the school, the auditorium walls were thin and we could both hear the swell of foot traffic in the hallways surging toward the cafeteria. It hadn't even crossed my mind until just then that neither of us had made an appearance in English class. My stomach started to twist. We'd better go, Jill breathed, rising up and flipping her hair back into place. Do you think we'll get in trouble? I don't think so, Jill concluded with a tone of certainty usually only found in adults. If you're going to skip a class, it's best to do it the period before lunch. By then, teachers assume if you're not there, you're absent or sick. If you skip first period, they think you're late and ask about you. And you skip the whole period. It's also best to make sure the class you skip is on the other side of the building from the rest of your classes, so you don't accidentally bump into that teacher later in the day. That would get you in trouble. I had no clue how she had developed this entire protocol. We'd only been in junior high a week and a half. But I wouldn't even care if I got in trouble for this, Jill smiled. Totally worth it. She gave me a quick kiss on my forehead and spirited herself up across the platform and down the stair before I could get off my back. I yanked the light off and descended to the stage from the darkness, hoping to catch her before she got out into the hallway. Jill, I called after her. I wanted to ask you if I could sit by you at lunch. But when I met the light at the lip of the stage, I was facing an invisible audience and she was gone. Do you think they're going to like the song, Freddie? I could tell Patrick was nervous because he was slowly rubbing his hands together the way you would if it was cold outside and you were trying to keep them warm. I just really hope they like the song, he said looking up at me, his hazy green eyes wide with a slight hint of uneasiness that, for him, was rare. Normally, my brother exhibited an even and calm sense of purpose uncommon in 11-year-old boys. He pretty much just did his thing, unfazed by whatever madness was swirling around us. Whereas my mind always seemed to be racing and conjuring, weighing and figuring, Patrick seemed settled and resolute, like whatever he was doing was precisely what he was supposed to be doing. Whether he was playing with his stuffed animals on our bedroom floor, or sampling through sounds on his synthesizer, he regularly displayed a repose and serenity I never quite knew how to wear. Whenever I'd become bored enough with my own adventures and wander back into our room to find him, Patrick was reliably seated in the same placid pose, legs crossed with an undisturbed spirit and a tranquil smile, like a rosy-cheeked, blonde-headed Buddha. They're going to love it, I reassured him putting my arm around him and pulling him side by side with me, especially after this total downer. I was referring to Danica Schwartz's flute solo, which was currently boring everybody in the audience to death. Danica's parents thought it would be a good idea to start her on the flute when she was in first grade, four whole years before every other normal kid started playing a band instrument. This resulted in Danica achieving an astonishing early mastery of the flute, 
and each September she would perform a depressingly long and Celtic-influenced solo in the Hamlow Elementary School talent show, which for some reason was held in the junior high auditorium. Maybe the powers that be thought holding it in there would seem like a big deal to elementary school kids who usually performed their simple programs on risers in Hamlow's tiny gym-slash-lunchroom. But given its dark, creaky, antique atmosphere, it wasn't surprising that a lot of kids were overcome with some level of fear by the time they shuffled out onto the bygone, broken-down stage. The mandatory attendance of all junior high students theoretically to show support, probably didn't help either. I don't know, Patrick exhaled. She's really good. Yeah, she's really good, but she does the same thing every year, I countered. Every year she does a perfect flute solo, and every year it gets longer and sounds sadder than the year before. As I tried to allay Patrick's fears with this insight, the sound of several kids shifting in the prehistoric wooden auditorium seats cut through Danica's dismal fluting, as if to make my point. See? People can't even sit still through this. You're gonna be fine. Besides, I added, you're doing rock and roll. This reminder seemed to do the trick, and Patrick stopped rubbing his hands. His light, assured smile returned. You're right, Freddie. It's going to be great. And it was great. For a grade school talent show, it was actually run pretty well. As soon as Danica's flute had floated its last dispiriting sigh out into the completely silent darkness, three adults emerged from the other side of the stage to usher her off and roll my brother's synthesizer out. They'd put it on a carpeted wooden dolly with casters, big enough that Patrick's amplifier could also sit on it and still allow him to stand comfortably behind the keyboard. Everything was already hooked up. Once they locked the wheels in place, Danica's dad, who was always on hand for these things, ran an extension cord back off stage while the other two moms placed microphones for each of us. It was easily the most professional setup I'd ever encountered. It felt kind of like a real thing. And our last act of the show is none other than Patrick Julius, announced Diane Trumbly, a voluptuous careening instructional aide who'd worked in the third grade classrooms for years and whom kids loved, but adults seemed uneasy around. This was likely due not just to her wildly effervescent manner, but to her wardrobe as well which seemed to consist of endlessly interchangeable bright but conspicuously tight pink sweaters and even tighter designer jeans that she wore tucked into giant white cowboy boots with pink tassels on the fronts. When third graders saw her outside at the drop-off lane before school, they usually screamed and sprinted right into her arms for a hug, of which her supply was also endless. When parents saw her, especially moms, they tended to roll their eyes. But Miss Trembley also performed country hits once a month at the Sports Page Lounge by the interstate exit, accompanying herself on acoustic guitar, so she was a natural to host the talent show each fall. Watching her smile and wave at the youngest children in the front rows sent a splash of watery reverb guitar down my back, and I felt an electric tingling in my temples. As Patrick and I hurried across the stage to get in place, his friends cheered and clapped, filling the auditorium with a genuinely excited thunder. 
While one of the stagehand moms adjusted my microphone, I tried to repress a smile. People were actually excited to see and hear what Patrick was going to do. This felt like serious show business, and I felt proud of him. And I see you brought a special friend with you, Miss Trembley gushed, swiveling towards us and gesturing with an overenthusiastic sweep of her arm. This is my brother Freddie, and we're going to do a song we wrote called Her Mustang, Patrick told the audience. Oh, my goodness, giggled Miss Trembley, weirdly. Well, we just can't wait to hear it. Go for it, boys. And with that, she clacked off the stage, her boots echoing up into the rafters beneath the rhythm of her swinging hips. I had expected Patrick to say more about the song, but he started playing even before the crowd's clapping had faded out. The sudden start shocked my system and gave me a sugary, breathless rush. The feeling of being not quite prepared, but leaping into the deep end anyway. Patrick's confidence wide enough to steal some for myself. We were already into the second verse when I realized he was using one of the synthesizer's pre-programmed drum machine beats to play along with, and my secret misgivings about the hipness of our song disappeared entirely. The crisp hits of the looped snare sounded cool underneath the chorused pulse of the synth stabs and our high voices singing in harmony, all of which Patrick had quietly crafted since our bathroom collaboration, unbeknownst to me. Everybody was clapping along and seemed to love it, especially the little kids in the front. The applause was still going strong, and we were in the middle of our bow when Miss Trembley came charging back onto the stage with a wild smile and an almost crazed look of excitement in her eyes. Oh my, we have ourselves a couple of little rock and rollers! She exclaimed over the din. Let the Julius brothers hear it, you guys! What a talented little duo, my goodness! Well, you are all just like a miniature Simon and Garfunkel! I didn't even care that that made absolutely no sense. It wasn't even a minute long, but Patrick's song had gone over. People legitimately dug it. On our way back down to our seats, I pulled him close again and whispered in his ear. I don't know who Simon and Garfunkel are, but I bet we sound better. When I left him at the end of the row of fifth graders to join my friends in the back, Patrick sat down and crossed his arms almost like he was giving himself a hug, beaming and contented. There was a general swell in the sea of restless youth, that surging volume of bodies shifting that precedes everyone rising from their seats, the sound of 200 children who can't wait to leave. Miss <laughs> Trembley's voice suddenly cut through the auditorium, silencing the rushing waves. Now, now hold on, hold on, kids, she sputtered into her microphone. I am told that we have a late addition to the lineup this afternoon, an unexpected special guest performance. She looked so wired and amped up, she seemed like she might explode. So please give him your full attention. I am sure this is going to be absolutely amazing. She stepped slightly to the right 
and did another exaggerated arm swing as the secret guest performer strolled out onto the stage to close the elementary school talent show. It was my dad. I could tell immediately from the way his towering frame leaned aggressively forward as he stalked across to the microphone, even though he was decked out in absolutely unfamiliar attire. He had an unmistakable gait, equal parts surliness and seduction, that shot off sparks of intrigue and unease, charging the atmosphere of whatever space he entered and always cutting a path in front of him as men got out of his way and women either shrunk back or allowed him by depending on how attracted they were to his invisible flowing cape of chaos and danger. Well, 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 my goodness, heaved Miss Trembley, alternating between looking out at us and looking my dad over. Well, it looks like somebody just flew in from the beach. That was one way of putting it. Another way of putting it was that he looked like a tourist who had bought one of everything. My dad was wearing an acid yellow Ocean Pacific t-shirt with a windsurfer on the front, from which he had removed both sleeves and the bottom third, transforming it into a frayed electric wrapper for his torso that revealed his massive arms and barely contained his puffed-out chest. He was also sporting white lagoons with the absolute craziest palm tree print I had ever seen on a pair of board shorts. His long, blinding white legs descended down into a pair of foam flip-flops with red fabric thongs and rainbows around the edges. This ensemble was pulled together by a hot pink gecko baseball cap that said hang loose on the side, and neon orange shades with a yellow cord that disappeared beneath his black hair around the back of his neck. He towered over Miss Trembley at the center of the stage like a giant fluorescent phantasm, slowly undulating and nodding out into the stunned silence and smiling. To what do we owe the pleasure? Miss Trembley asked breathlessly, leaning back with one hand over her chest. Originally, I was supposed to perform a duet with Bette Midler. My father boomed into the microphone. The divine Miss M. Miss Trembley laughed so hard at this I thought she'd choke. The rest of the auditorium was dead silent. But unfortunately she could not make it due to contractual obligations, so I will be laying it down solo. Oh no! Miss Trembley pouted in fake disappointment, playing along. But all is not lost, my dad continued, completely milking it. Fortunately, she sent a tape. He reached into the back pocket of his ridiculous shorts and produced a cassette, which he raised into the air above his head, zealously waving it like the winning lottery ticket. On this tape is a backing track from her producer with her vocal, he explained like the show business pro he was not. So it looks like she and I will be doing that duet after all. Yes! Awesome! Miss Trembley erupted, clapping with delight. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy our soulful rendition of Under the Boardwalk. If you could just pop that into the sound system, me and Bet will get down to business. 
Miss Trumbly took my dad's tape and rushed off stage to cue it up while he bowed his head and waited for the music to start. Because I could already sense that several pairs of eyes were trained on me, I remained motionless in my seat and kept my own gaze fixed straight ahead on the stage and the nightmare I was certain was about to unfold on it. My dad launched into the performance, swaying in the spotlight to the slightly calypso rhythm of this yuppie version of Under the Boardwalk. His powerful and lithe tenor seemed to leap right out of his forehead like it always did, full and without any effort at all. He hardly needed the microphone, but he kept twisting the cord away from him in small circles that mirrored the slightly larger circles his hips were making as his brash spectacle gathered steam. His beanstalk legs carried him from one side of the stage to the other in the same slightly creepy way that almost all white male performers from the 1960s exhibited, like a weirdly sexual scarecrow had come to life. Around the final chorus, Miss Trembley appeared and started dancing around with my dad in a way that was equally sexual and twice as weird. She was doing that terrible move I'd seen some women do at the July 4th dance in the beer garden at Waverly Fest. The one where both arms are out wide to the side and they just jiggle their chest around while leaning forward and then back. While Miss Trembley trembled, my father whipped out what looked like a hypercolor handkerchief and started waving it around seductively, eventually placing it on the floor at her feet. I guess this was supposed to be a visual gag. Like, I'm all out of actual beach blankets, but I've got this hand towel, so nothing's stopping us. Nobody laughed, but even from where I was sitting in the back, you could see that Miss Trembley's cheeks were flushed. Still gyrating, he took her hand and assisted her in lying down on it on her side, one of her arms propping her head up and the other languidly landing on her right knee as she assaulted the audience with an unhinged smile. I took all of this in without moving an inch. I felt like I was strapped into a cheap amusement park ride I didn't want to be on, and the operator was busy chatting up girls on the midway instead of manning the controls. I just wanted it to stop. As the refrain faded out at the end of the song, I felt someone move in close over my right shoulder. Warm, dentine-flavored breath engulfed my ear. Julius, that's your dad, dude. I barely turned my head at this brilliant observation, but could see well enough from the corner of my eye that it was offered by Graham Snyder. His dumb jean jacket was bunched up around his ears, and he was hanging on the back of the seat next to me, spreading a spiteful grin across his tiny face. Graham's self-satisfied chuckling lasted for a good 30 seconds before somebody pulled him back down into the row behind me. Miss Trembley was the only person clapping as my dad exited stage left. Oh, oh, my, wow, what a gift, my goodness. Just, oh, well, that's the end of our show this year. Thank you to everyone who shared their talent. You're all excused. Oh, my. The noise of everybody trying to get out of the auditorium was almost as deafening as the silence following my father's master class in abstruse performance art. 
A relentless tide of students poured through the double doors and down the wide main steps from the second floor landing to the first and out the entrance, teeming and surging to make it to the buses on time. I had also emerged from the auditorium, but felt like I was in a state of suspended animation, the difference in speed creating a disorienting sensation of moving backward with each forward step. If someone had been filming this, the result would have been a massive parallax effect. Patrick and the rest of the grade school kids had followed their teachers out the auditorium's back exit, and I had lost sight of him. I wondered how he was feeling. As the last of the junior high kids blew past me, I had the thought that although my dad had actually been present at the talent show, he hadn't even watched Patrick's song. I thought he might at least come up to one or both of us after the show was over and say hello, but that didn't happen either. He was an expert at disappearing, after all. My guess was that Patrick was already on his way down to my mom's room. I'd have to wait until I got there to see how this whole monstrous pageant had affected him. As I was contemplating this, Mrs. McCrowley appeared in front of me. What a voice! She panted. Tell your father we loved his performance. Yes, chimed Miss Weidenhofer, the drama teacher from behind McCrowley. Such a talent. Wow, that charisma. I had fielded compliments from my dad like this before, after he'd sing in church or at a wedding from various enamored and palpitating women. I always wondered if they'd be as swept away if they knew what it was like to experience his charisma on a daily basis. Yeah, he's really good, I managed. I'll be sure and tell him. Neither teacher said anything about Patrick's song. They just turned and traipsed down the hall, twittering away about the handkerchief bit and how funny it was. The entire second floor landing was deserted and silent, except for a smattering of life still going on in the main office. I just stood there alone, boiling and wanting to scream, but unable to move except for the rapid rising and falling of my chest and the twitching of my cheeks as the itchy hotness took over my face and neck. I had just closed my eyes to try and calm down when a massive hand clasped my left shoulder. I shook it off violently and swiveled around in a vicious arc, ready to empty both barrels of my rage and heartbreak into my dad's chest at point-blank range. But it wasn't my dad. It was RJ. Uh, um, sorry. I, I thought you were my dad. I fumbled, my expression softening into a confused grimace. My breath was still quick, though, and my body was on high alert because RJ had an extraordinarily mean look on his face. His jaw was clenched so tight that his cheeks were turning crimson, and there was an indisputable hatred in his damp, unblinking eyes. We stood silently looking at each other like this for maybe a minute. Fuck that guy, RJ finally said. I felt a tear escape. He ruined your song. But he didn't ruin it, I deflected. He just, sometimes he just shows up at the school talent show and straight up ruins your song? Yeah, I gave up, hanging my head. More silence. 
If my dad did that, I'd take him out, or at least tell him to bite me. The image of RJ's father berating him from the stands and smacking him in the face during football practice instantly materialized in my mind, making me shudder. I don't think that would really work with my dad, you know? RJ's hateful gaze became sullen as he looked quickly down at the floor. Yeah, he breathed out. But someday, those assholes will get what's coming to them. Yeah, I whispered in agreement, not believing it at all, and thinking the last thing I ever wanted to do was come to blows with my father. I liked your song. Not the high parts, the drums and the bass. Thanks, I mustered awkwardly. Well, I gotta get to practice. RJ seemed a little less keyed up as he began heading toward the doors. Right before he opened them, he turned around. Hey, he bellowed from the steps below. See you tomorrow. And then he was gone. When's dad going to be home? Patrick asked this with an earnestness and innocence that belied the fact that just like me, he had witnessed our father overshadow the debut of his song by blowing up the talent show not three hours ago. Is he going to have dinner with us? I shook my head and picked at my plate, not even remotely interested in the hamburger and tater tot casserole my mom had made, which was one of my favorites. No, I don't think he's going to be here for dinner, sweetie, my mom said gently, exhaling slowly and evenly and setting down her fork. I want to see what he thought of our song. Patrick saying this after everything that had happened at school made me think the whole train wreck hadn't affected him in the same way it had affected me, twisting my stomach into knots several times over and turning my anxiety up to maximum overdrive. Maybe he actually thought Dad had watched our performance. Maybe he thought what Dad had done was great. I think he's going to be home pretty late, Patrick. I had dumped all of the details of the talent show fiasco right in my mom's lap the minute I got to her room after school. I had watched her warm cheer turn sour as I recounted them, her expression deadening with each bit of new information until she was standing with her hands on her hips, her chin tight and jutting out, and her mouth slightly open while she almost imperceptibly shook her head. She had been in a state of somber silence ever since. Yeah, well, I muttered, not looking up. I hope he never comes home. Neither Patrick or my mother had time to react to this pronouncement, because right as I finished saying that, like it was his cue to enter the scene, my dad came waltzing through our front door. He set his briefcase down by his chair and removed his oatmeal-colored tweed sport coat, which he draped over the back of it. He loosened his tie and began heaping his plate with the casserole none of us seemed to be able to eat ourselves. Nobody said anything to him. How was everybody's day? He asked, plowing into his dinner and not looking up. My mother registered her disbelief by quickly huffing and taking her plate to the kitchen sink, her forceful footsteps telling him exactly how her day was going. Uh, how do you think our day was? I shot back at him before I could stop myself. 
My dad slowed his intake enough to turn his head slightly to the right and look me in the eye. I don't know, Freddy, that's why I asked, he menaced sarcastically. What did you think of our song, Dad? Patrick piped up. What song? The song we did at the talent show at school. What talent show? I couldn't hold it in anymore. I erupted. Oh, for Christ's sake, Dad! I yelled, slamming my fork down and standing up. The talent show at school today, the one where you sang under the boardwalk and danced with Miss Trembley and embarrassed yourself in front of the whole elementary and junior high? Remember? My dad was staring straight back at me like I was insane. I've been at work all day, he calmly responded, his face showing both the shock and hurt of someone falsely accused. God damn it, my mom cried and ran out of the kitchen, escaping upstairs to my parents' bedroom. That's a lie, I wailed. You came to the talent show and ruined everything with your stupid duet with Bette Midler, and nobody even remembers Patrick's song because all anybody could talk about afterward was you and Miss Trembley and your stupid, perfect voice. The salt and water were streaming, and I descended down into a deep red mess of angry sobbing that broke through despite my best attempt to keep it in check. Somehow I managed to maintain eye contact with my father, even though I felt terrified. But I didn't care, and I couldn't hold it together anymore. He just sat there quietly observing my meltdown, withholding his empathy if he even had any to begin with. Finally, after I was spent and had moved out of crying and into just shaking, he spoke. Well, I think I'm going to go eat in the barn, he said. I don't need to sit around here and listen to this. All I could do as he got up to leave was stand by the table, trembling, with my hands balled into fists at my side. Do you want to listen to our song when you come back in? Patrick asked carefully, moving around the table and standing to my left. Don't worry about the light on the deck, he said, ignoring Patrick's question. I'll shut it off when I'm done. Don't wait up. My dad slammed the front door so hard behind him that the small heirloom mirror on the wall next to the frame dropped off and shattered when it hit the floor, causing both Patrick and I to jump. When I looked over at my brother, he was staring down at the reflective shards sprayed out all over the hardwood, his wide eyes welling up with tears. Each jagged piece showed a slightly different angle of his virtuous sorrow. Just as I turned in to hug him, he sprinted off upstairs, leaving me alone in the front of the house. For just a second, as I was sweeping up the mirror glass, I remembered what RJ had said about our dads someday getting what was coming to them. Even more fleeting was a thought about what might happen if I actually went out to the barn and confronted my dad. But this line of thinking evaporated instantly as I gathered the tinkling fragments into the dustpan and caught a fractured portrait of myself looking back up at me. A slivered, separated phantom with four eyes and three mouths, assuring me that someday would never come.
This episode of Lonely Boy is brought to you by Sick Picnic Media. To us, you're not just a listener. You're part of this journey now, too. For exclusive updates, sneak peeks, and maybe even a free track or two, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or sign up for our email list. Don't forget, we release new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms every Friday. Until next time, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's always a good time to imagine anything. Peace and much love. Please note, Lonely Boy is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2023, Sick Picnic Media. All rights reserved, including the right to reproduce, distribute, or transmit in any form or by any means. For information regarding subsidiary rights, please contact Sick Picnic Media.